the 1st of July 2018, a new approach to the non arms length concept came to life. non arms length expenses. And this new kid on the block proves to be very dangerous to SMSF accountants and especially SMSF auditors. You are listening to Australia's tax news podcast, Tax Talks, the podcast for Australian tax professionals. Welcome to episode 133 of Tax Talks. This is Heidi Robson and thank you to Class for sponsoring this episode. So let's talk about this new concept of non-arms-length expenses and why it is so dangerous to SMSF auditors and accountants. Here's Peter Bobbin of Arga Lawyers with some insights. So let's look at the final part of non-arms length, which is the new part, which is your non-arms length expenses. So how is that coming in? Is that actually a, a change to the Income Tax Assessment yes. Act 97 that and it was applies done last year. retrospectively from the 1st of July 2018? That's correct, yeah. Non-arms length expenses is the new concept. Before, 295, 550 concentrated on income. Whilst it had some depth to it, certainly much more depth than Section 109 of the CIS Act, that depth was all directed at is the income or is the gain transaction arms length. These rules have now been expanded to ask the question, are expenses of an arms length nature? Now, my particular view, the need for NALE, N-A-L-E, that is, which is backdated to 1 July 2018, the need for this, the need for this legislative change urges my view that so-called practical compliance guideline PCG 5 of 2016 was simply wrong. Now, you may not recognise PCG 5 of 2016, but that's when the tax office came out with their, I'm now suggesting, potentially clumsy approach to trying to argue that limited recourse borrowing arrangements with low interest loans was actually in breach of non-arms length income. My view is that particular practice guideline or practical compliance guideline overstepped the mark, overstepped the law, because As we know, for Section 109 purposes, if the super fund gets a favourable rent, we actually don't have a breach of that, or favourable interest cost, I should say. One can well argue that the whole purpose of providing a lower interest is all about retirement, so I think it's quite available to get past Section 62. And then when it came to 295.550, well, it was an expense. 295.550 looks at income. It doesn't look at net income, it looks at income. So in my view, practical compliance guideline, which is where the Commission has sought to impose the tax office view on quashing low-interest loans in a limited recourse borrowing arrangement, it just was wrong. Having said that, it now applies, and it has applied since 1 July 2018. Just reading from the explanatory memorandum, I think it's paragraph 1.9, it expressed the view that non-arms length expenses, these changes were to deal with a technical deficiency in the non-arms length income provisions whereby non-arms length expenses, including where no expenses are charged, and that's the important point I want to come back to, 
result in income not being treated as non-arm's length income as intended. That, to me, just reinforces what I said a moment ago. Again, the complaints from memorandum says, it may be ambiguous where expenses incurred by a superannuation entity in respect of an asset are not at arm's length terms. For example, where real property is acquired under a limited recourse borrowing arrangement and where the rent derived under the scheme is at market rates but the interest paid on the loan is not. Non-arm's length expenses were seeking to deal with what the Commissioner was saying the Commissioner had the power to deal with in PCG 5 of 2016. I'm saying the explanatory memorandum explains the fact that the Commissioner did not have that power and did not have the ability to express what he did in that practical guidance. Again, from the explanatory memorandum, the current law may not apply to net capital gains. For example, a fund acquires an asset at less than its market value through non-arm's length dealings due to the operation of the cost-based market value substitution rules in 11220, current non-arm's length income rules may have no effect, even though the transaction diverts more wealth, in practical terms, into superannuation. Again, let's keep going from that explanatory memorandum. The framework for the new non-arm's length income rules, which I'm saying is fundamentally targeting expenses or outgoings or payments by the super fund remains broadly the same. There must be a scheme and the parties to the scheme must incur less or nil expenditure that would otherwise be expected if the parties were dealing with each other on an arm's length basis in relation to the scheme. Expenses may be of a revenue or capital nature in the same way that non-arm's length income may be statutory or ordinary income. So these non-arm's length expenses provisions really are quite expanding non-arm's length income for 295, 550 purposes. Whereas before we were focused on the income and was the income or the gains in the transaction arm's length, now we're looking at whether the expenses or the outgoings incurred, including acquisition price, was that on a non-arm's length basis. This is where the problem really arises because non-arm's length expenses, what you're looking for to be able to answer that question properly is for nothing. I'll explain that in a moment. Yes, but it makes sense. You're basically looking for expenses that were paid outside of the fund on behalf of the fund. And it's easy to find, for example, when it's tax payments... But it's much harder to find when it's operating expenses or yes. rental expenses. If we look at non-arm's length expenses from the perspective of the expansion memorandum, it's fundamentally directed to dealing with low-interest loans by related parties to the super fund to acquire an asset. The problem is the language of the legislation is so much broader and even the explanatory memorandum refers to an occasion where there may be no expenses or outgoings incurred and it identifies that as being a non-arm's length situation. So let me give you a couple of examples here. So if we've got an accountant who does his own self-managed super fund, he does his own books, he doesn't charge. Do we have a non-arm's length expense situation? Because we've got services being provided, 
but the character of those services are not being charged. So there's an expense that has not been incurred, and that expense has not been incurred because of the non-arms-length character of the relationship between the parties and the transaction, you could say, is non-arms-length. Does that fall foul of this area? The answer here is no. Why? Because you need to look at the character and nature of the transaction as it sits now in a superannuation trust law context. You see, the director of the corporate trustee of the SMSF or the accountant individual who's a trustee of the SMSF, as a trustee, there is a duty for the trustees to keep books and records. So it's actually quite available and explicable to say that an accountant who does his own financial statements for his own super fund for free, it's actually okay. It won't fall under this non-arm's length expenses area because it's an ordinary internal dealing, ultimately and utterly consistent with trust law. But let's look at it a different perspective. What about the brickie or the builder who has their own self-managed super fund? And they provide building services for free. They do repair work for free. It seems to me that the view of the tax office will be that that will be non-arm's length expenses and I actually think there's some degree of merit in that. It's not expected, so we can't explain it from some form of purely internal dealing. It's not expected that a superannuation fund trustee, and we're just looking at ordinary trust law here to examine this, it's not expected that a superannuation fund trustee would actually lay the bricks to build the property for the benefit of the trust. So if we've got the member that's doing it, the member also being the trustee, and they're not charging a proper fee for that, then we actually have a non-arm's length expense issue. Now, this is the difficulty, because how do you find that? Because you're looking for nothing. If as an auditor what you're doing is, or as an accountant what you're doing is, you're just looking at the papers, you don't see the fact that the expense was not charged. Do you see the concern that I have here? This is why the 2019 financial statements, because this area of the law is backdated with effect to commence from 1 July 2018, so it's the 2019 and forward tax years that are impacted. You actually have to alter and up the questions. If you're the accountant preparing the financial statements, you need to ask, have you provided any services or support to the superannuation fund for which you have not charged a fee or any expense. If you're the auditor, you're asking your accountant colleague who gave you the work or perhaps you're asking for a declaration by the trustees again affirming that they have not provided any services of a non-arm's length nature or if they have, they then describe it below. That will then require the accountant or the auditor to then form a view if it's character of what's been done for which no expense has been charged, fits within the duties of a trustee of a trust, it'll be okay. Otherwise, it won't. And because a fee or an expense was not incurred, we have non-arm's length expenses, we have non-arm's length income, we have a problem. What about uh, somebody who is interested in share dealings, etc., does a lot of research about shares and then buys and sells shares? 
they wouldn't do that for, for somebody else for free, but they do it for the SMSF for free. So would we have an issue there? We've looked at the question from an accountant and a builder. Let's look at the question from a, another perspective. Again, just to emphasise the approach that needs to be taken. What if we have a stockbroker, a stock analyst, highly skilled in shares? And it's not unreasonable to expect that as a trustee of their SMSF or a director of their corporate trustee, they may then undertake degrees of research and make recommendations to the super fund to acquire certain stocks and perhaps to sell certain stocks from time to time. In doing so, they don't charge a fee. Is that a problem or is it acceptable? Again, let's go back to the character of the nature of that relationship. They are a trustee, they are working in a trustee capacity and the trustee is merely engaging in investments of the trust because it's terribly compliant and consistent with what a trustee duty is in respect of trustee investments to give some thought, to give some care, to give some research, then the fact that that, there's no expense charged for it, quite acceptable. So there's another example of where if you look at it and can it be expressed that it's on a purely internal basis, you won't have a problem with non-arms length expenses, that's fine. It's when it's not within that internal trust law style of approach that I say that you then have a problem. Let's just reflect again to affirm what that problem is. If the character of the expense not paid comes within this non-arm's length expenses area, then the whole of the income, this is just not some proportionate bit, the whole of the income is non-arm's length. The whole of it, even though the income itself is arm's length, the whole of the relevant proportion of income then has the problem. Let me again emphasise this by looking at it from another perspective. Let's say we had an accountant who runs his own SMSF and that accountant SMSF has, say, a 33% investment in a unit trust. And there are other unit holders. And that accountant is not a director of the unit trust trustee company, but the accountant provides services for free to that unit trust. I'm afraid because the accountant is not an office holder of the unit trust, the fact that the accountant provides those services for free is a non-arm's length expenses problem. It'll trace its way through the unit trust to the super fund. It'll mean the whole of the income, albeit that income is completely arm's length, the whole of that income of that 33% passing to that super fund is their non-arm's length income forever. And quite arguably, the units in the unit trust will then have non-arm's length analysis also applied to any future capital gain. This is really a diabolical area. Why do I say it's diabolical? Because you're looking for nothing. You're looking to be satisfied that nothing is there and that nothing is correct. It's when there's nothing that's there and nothing is not correct, that's when you then got to have that further analysis and say, well, is it explicable by ordinary trustee style of duties and obligations? If yes, you're okay. If no, non-arm's length expenses, and it's really diabolical. You need to change your approach to audit. You need to expand the way in which the accountant who's preparing those financial statements is asking those questions. You need to change the trustee, director, trustee representations to both the accountant and the auditor. That's what needs to be done.
so far what we've done is we've looked at superannuation from the CIS Act, with particular reference to Section 62, sole purpose test. By the way, I invite you to have a look at Aussie Golfer because that's a federal court decision that reinforces that it's not about the non-arms length character of the parties, it's the transaction that's at issue. In that superannuation context, we looked at non-arms length as it relates to Section 109, briefly also, only very, very briefly, touched upon Section 65, 66 and 67. We've then spent the rest of our time talking about non-arms length income and the new non-arms length expenses area, where the Commissioner can apply income on the income tax at the top rate. Perhaps the most diabolical of all is demonstrated by the New South Wales Court of Appeal decision in Cam and Bear versus McGoldrick. Here we have a situation where an auditor of a superannuation fund was found to be 90% liable to the underlying investment risk suffered by the SMSF because, they claimed, they didn't audit the super fund appropriately and had they done it appropriately, they would have identified, that is the SMSF auditor, that what was listed in the financial statements as being a cash asset was not in fact a cash asset. It was in fact an asset or an investment in a third party related entity and was an entirely unsecured debt. Sadly, I see this case as being a forebear of what is yet to come. I also see, sadly, that this is a situation where the SMSF trustee is looking to blame others. What I have to admit is this is a case where the SMSF auditor was sued. Now, before those SMSF auditors are listening get uh, too upset, remember that the New South Wales Court of Appeal, as in the earlier courts, had to rely upon special evidence, expert evidence, what am I saying? Other SMSF auditors, other auditors would have presented the view to the court that what the particular SMSF auditor did was wrong, that it fell short of a proper professional standard of an auditor. So it's actually other professional auditors that actually gave rise to this risk that SMSF auditors now carry. What is it again? Where the super fund engages in a non-arm's length transaction, non-arm's length dealing, and in consequence of that, later suffers a loss, has the SMSF auditor and potentially also the accountant doing the financial statements identified this risk and identified and brought it to the attention of the SMSF trustee so that the SMSF trustee can actually deal with it? It's a problem, I admit. Again, what I say is that you really do need to sit down and look at your uh, disclosures and declarations by the SMSF trustees, and they need to address non-arms length income, non-arms length expenses from both a tax law perspective and from this perspective of risk. You really do want a declaration that the trustees are satisfied that all of the investment activities they're engaged in are properly represented in the financial statements and were proper exercise of their duties to invest for the benefit of the beneficiaries of the superannuation. I'd like to thank you for taking the time to 
listen to my views on non-arm's length income as it relates to superannuation, we've got three perspectives we've taken. One, superannuation. Have a look at that Scott's case number two. Read it. I encourage you to do that. Two, section 295, 550 of the Income Tax Assessment Act 97, and the essence of that, been around for a very long time, 65 plus years. Um, and it's all about taxing the income or gains of the super fund at the top marginal rate of tax. And three, which I say is somewhat more worrying, this new area of being sued and people seeking others to take responsibility for their actions. What's needed in this area in particular? Very strong, confident declarations whereby it's reasonable for the accountant and the auditor to rely upon. Thank you. I hope you've got something out of this presentation as I did in when I put it together in the first place. Thank you again. Welcome back. So non-arms length expenses can be a time bomb. You might not think about it and suddenly when you sell, it turns out that the entire capital gain plus any income the SMSF ever derived from that asset is non-arms length because somewhere along the line there was a non-arms length expense. So with that parting comment, we come to the end of our three episodes about non-arms length transactions. But before we part, here's something else. After the interview, I asked Peter about something and I thought his advice was very helpful. So here it is. You spoke about the danger of having an LRBA that doesn't charge enough interest, etc. Yes. Can I just very quickly run an example through you? Let's say the SMSF wants to buy a property that's 200,000. They only have 100,000 in the bank. So they have two options. One is to do an LRBA in front of thousand, but that's dangerous for many reasons. The other option, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think the other option is that they can just buy half of the property and then buy as an individual, buy the other half in private names. That's correct. And contribute this time more tranches of this property into the SMS. Provided that the property is business real property, yes. Yes. Yeah. yes. Yeah. That's quite common. If you get the LRBA right, it's only where it's a private LRBA where these concerns arise because it's the private LRBA where the interest is low interest or the private LRBA where just the fact of non-payment of interest is just forgotten. It's a mistake. All of a sudden becomes a non-unthanked transaction and all of a sudden turns the private LRBA, which otherwise would have worked, into a So a if, you, if you can get a bank to give you an LRBA, then you're Absolutely, go safe. for it. Because you've got the property in, the whole of the property in the super fund, you're only paying one, one lot of stamp duty, absolutely go for it. In the next episode, episode 134, Peter Bobbin will talk about testamentary trusts. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to Class for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.